0: All right, so we are back with episode six, Band of Brothers. This one's called Bastone. I'm Preston Stewart. And Sayer. thanks for jumping on again. Glad to be here. So we're doing back-to-back episodes today. We just did episode five, Crossroads. We're going to follow that up with, um, after a short break, Refill the Water, episode six. So um, if you're watching on YouTube, we've got this on YouTube, and uh, the podcast is up in a few areas. So if you're watching, we're wearing the same thing, um, it's because it's the exact same day. Say, I've been meaning to tell you this, but I had somebody on uh, TikTok at one point say, you wear a lot of Astros gear. Are you from Austin or are you from Houston? I have one Astros shirt. Mm-mm. I just don't have a lot of clothes. So you're going to see me wearing the same clothes over and over again. Uh,
1: well, me too. I'm right <laughs> there with you. I keep it simple, man.
0: <laughs> but in this case, it's not just the same shirt from a week ago. It's uh it's back to back episodes. Quite
1: literally the same shirt. But yeah, me wearing flannel, this flannel shirt in particular. <laughs> what day of the week are we in right now? It doesn't matter it's always yeah. that way. It's just cold AC. It's the summer too.
0: So we're getting into episode six. This one's called Bastone, and it's about Bastone. So famous crossroads in, well, it wasn't a famous crossroads. Uh, it became a famous intersection, is maybe a better way to put it because of this battle. Um, it's one of the places in Europe and well around the world that really had no global significance
1: mm-hmm.
0: until combat took place there. Think about the islands in the Pacific that you would never have heard of. And would you have ever been able to pinpoint Peleliu or ever recognize that, that right. little tiny two mile? Or
1: more locally, uh, St. Mary Glaze. There you go, exactly.
0: But instead, Bastone is just ingrained as one of these slog fests maybe is a better way to put it it's kind of the opposite side of the 101st that's that's fast mobile jumping in this is one where it's just a grind a nasty yeah.
1: grind it's uh that's an interesting point you're right it's digging the foxholes and conventional this is what line you, well, i'm sure that they would call the regulars I right, um we're doing it it's a regular job which is probably on the ground with the tank support here and there type stuff This
0: episode, I looked back after the fact, and I don't know, I found this online. There's some graphs online that show main character for the episode. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be, it seems pretty accurate. Um, Like episode five, the main character was Lieutenant Winters or Captain Winters. I think I've said Lieutenant a lot after he made Captain, but Dick Winters. Um, And that sounds about right. This Mm -hmm. one, they say the main character is a medic, Doc Eugene Rowe. And the reason I looked that up is it feels like that, but I don't know if that was on purpose or if that's just how it played out. It's the medic episode.
1: Totally. No, I'm hundred percent. It is the medic episode. And I, and, and, and they're telling the story. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're telling the story of a line medic in the context of the battle of the bulge. And it's about both of those things. And this is one piece of the Battle of the Bulge. This
0: is, I feel like I'm staying true to my word because early on I say, I'm going to have very, very few critiques of the series. But at the very end of the episode, they talk about how they essentially refer to this as the Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. whereas as really, this is one piece of a giant offensive across Western Europe. If you look at the text at the end, when it talks about Patton coming to relieve the 101st, Um, I think it, it makes it seem like, makes it seem like this, how am I going to say this correctly? This is one puzzle piece, a very important puzzle piece, but there were other units fighting all across Europe at the time. Um, but this is an interesting one because they're
1: surrounded right away. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you bring up a lot right there because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the bigger context. The very, I mean, we're skipping ahead, but the very ending of the movie says that, well, you just described how, you know, Germans or uh, Patton's Third Army historically is viewed as the ones who saved them. But in reality, it was, you know, the 101 breaking through. That's how they view it. Well, to me, though, historically, it wasn't Patton. Because, <laughs> well, like what I said on the last episode, everyone believed that from all, all the movies of like the 60s and 70s. Well, we didn't come up with that view. I didn't really know what the Battle of the Bulge really was when I was 16, 17 years old. So my association is with the 101, which I think is yours. And what you're just saying is, well, not really. You actually had Patton's third army that was doing some big stuff too. And there's a piece to the pie. That's the campaign, by the way, you know, where everybody's on the board and, the, and everyone's a piece to it. Um, and I really don't know. I do know, I will brag about that. My great uncle was under the third army And I have a handgun that he captured in a leather holster. It's a really yeah, it's a fabric. It's not a luger, it's a Fabrique Nationale, FN. They make, you know, FN around now. They make um they're from Belgium and they were captured by the Germans, of course. And as I remember reading in high school and I got it, um it was the only arms manufacturer that made guns on both sides of the war because the Germans repurposed them. I'm well, not repurposed them, but made them make them for the, themselves, for the Germans. And it's got the eagle stamp with the swastika. But anyway, he was there, battled the bulge, all that stuff. And I've got the handgun, which is kind of cool. So to back it up
0: at a high level here, just to paint the historical picture, the, the issue with Bastone is that think of it like the hub of a wheel. Of all the spokes coming into it mm-hmm. and you can even see it today if you look at a map and look at Bastogne. it's not as clean as you know the wheel of a bicycle with all the spokes but it's the same idea i want to say it's an 80 to 100 mile stretch north and south and germany's coming from the east moving west and there's this 80 to 100 mile stretch where there's not really a hub like Bastogne, except for Bastogne. Mm-hmm. so for german armor and and mechanized tracked vehicles to really move quickly to the west towards antwerp they need these intersections to be able to spread out and move at a rapid pace they they can go cross country they do go cross country but nowhere near as efficient doing that and some of these forests you just plain can't get armor through um so bastone is important the reason that they're surrounded you would say if they're surrounded then who cares right they lost the germans are behind them they were able to get light vehicles. They are able to get infantry behind them. They weren't able to move, they weren't able to move through the town and actually take over those roads and spokes the wheel. Then there even bigger picture, there's some controversy as to whether or not the Germans should have just ignored it and gone around instead of trying to hammer through and actually annihilate the 101st and other units. The 101st made up a little over half of the units in Bastogne, but there were quite a few others there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's an argument to be made that germany should have said fine you can have the town we're gonna shift directions as essentially that they made it into something more critical than needed to be and then lost that
1: yeah Uh, that's interesting um i'm sure that intimidation comes into play use of force all of that too um in addition to, I mean, that's the violence of action part, desperation, making someone feel desperate, uh, saying I'm coming to kill you. Uh, that that's a tone. That's a message. It's like bayonet charge. Like we were talking about bayonet is a message. Um, they know that their panzers and blitzkrieg are very scary even now still. I mean, there's something to fear while they're there. Even it's not like that. The, the GIs are all, think that they can handle any german unit that comes their way no i mean it's still it's toe-to-toe type stuff and so you know i think at like at times it's about the maneuver on the board but then again there's also in chess you don't really maybe they do intimidate each other across the table or something but mostly it's about where the pieces actually go War you can send signals and messages and maybe that was a part of it you know i don't know though it's i would like to I'd like to read more big picture for sure, especially more just conventional army type stuff and what the Germ- more into what the Germans were doing and thinking at that time.
0: Well, I'm going to start off the topic of Doc Rowe because I think we're going to spend most of the episode talking about him, but pretty early on, so the 101st is dug in all around Bastogne. They're pretty thin, uh, not, not not well tied in. They don't have many anti-armor weapons, which should be the bazooka at the time which is somewhat effective at the right time the right place mm-hmm. um but pretty early on you see lieutenant dyke who we mentioned at the end of last episode shows up upset that his boss isn't there forgetting all the other stuff he needs to do and uh i don't know they anyways w- what i was going to say is his line he goes up to the first sergeant said where's my foxhole where's my foxhole person and you can see first sergeant mm-hmm. lifting kind of I don't think he actually rolls his eyes, but you can hear him roll his eyes in his voice, right? When he says, I'll show you, follow me, sir. I'll show you, you're getting too, I think he said you're too close to the front, sir.
1: Let me, uh, yeah. let me show you. Well, you, again, weak leaders, obstacles over, under, or through them. And they had, the, they they learned the real hard way through Sobel. And maybe there were some unknown PLs that we're not, I don't know if we've known every single PL in Easy Company yet. You know, they, I'm, they've encountered officers this whole time, right? So. Um, and NCOs, weak NCOs, so, uh, you know, over, under, and through, or around, I think they're going around right now um, to deal with this obstacle of a weak leader.
0: It does seem
1: to show,
0: and I think there has to be a little bit of an exaggeration when you're telling stories mm-hmm. like this, maybe, but, um, or maybe there doesn't have to be, but it seems like sometimes there are, we've got this this mix of either the best leader ever, or the worst leaders, Right um and i think the reality is the majority of people fall in the middle where they do their job they do their job well um but it's kind of boring almost to a degree i so i i I don't mean to say that you know lieutenant dyke is a good leader or even a mediocre leader but i think there's probably we don't hear much about the platoon leaders for instance that makes me think the platoon leaders probably are all right in that middle band of they do a good job they do their it nothing nothing exceptional but they're not failures they're right in the middle um there's a couple that'll get called out eventually but i think it's worth saying we're highlighting the extremes
1: yeah i yeah that's a fair point because we're also teaching lessons to, i you know again band brothers there's so many lessons and that's i think why, a lot of the reason why we're talking why it's interesting to talk about it because there are so many lessons that come out of it and um the Dyke thing makes me think about, by the way, what we were just talking about with the awards because I looked him up a little bit and he was in Market Garden. He got awards, Valor awards. But then again, we don't know because what we do know is he came from staff and it's like they write the awards. (laughs) They have the time to write the awards. And so it's like, but at the same time, maybe he did do all the stuff at Market Garden and maybe it changed him and altered him. Who knows? But he did get, you know, he was at Market Garden. He did get some um, valorous actions. It's just, that's all we have though, are those awards to go off of. That's that's our truth and our reality. But um, no one was there when those awards were written. What we also have though, are also a lot of firsthand accounts though through the band of brothers, um, book and, and, and series. And, um, it just goes to so much as we don't know what actually happened. Some of it was captured on paper. Some of it was fluffed up on paper too, though. And some of it wasn't even put on paper.
0: They don't spend a lot of time, at least by this episode, um, Bastogne, By this episode, you can tell the soldiers don't respect him. Right. But they also haven't really shown what he's done to lose that respect. It's just these little snippets. And I think that's how powerful that scene of showing up, where, you know, where's my foxhole? Um, And these weird little interactions. I think it's some in this and some in the next episode where it's just really awkward with him. He's constantly, constantly, I got to go. I need to put in a report. I need to run to the headquarters. But it's just these couple few moments, I think, that show... The respect there is gone. I don't know if it was ever there, but holy cow.
1: Um, Well, I don't think it starts. It probably was never there because I don't think you get respect out of it. I don't think as any ranker or officer, you just show up with immediate respect. Like that is earned. Like the rank, you get the superficial respect. Yes, sir. All that sort of stuff. Um, the salutes. The, that's all physical, though. It doesn't mean, you know you could call them someone sir and be like this person is so full of shit so sir doesn't matter um and i think you i would just have to you know you size they're always saw everyone sizing everybody up always because everybody has to be reliable uh, back to the tacoa stuff you cannot have any malingerers if you if if the person if you can't trust the person right or left of you someone will die and so you start to really have a gang mentality and, and, and to find a way to fight out and identify those that will are the, the chink in the armor or the weak in the, the weakness in the link. And it is, it is aggressive. It is. Uh, um, it's just a, it's, it's just a primal environment.
0: So to that point, pretty early on, you've got general McAuliffe who, artilleryman, I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. Yep. Artilleryman. So on his helmet, You'll see the markings. Um, there's the little markings for uh, you know, 506 as a spade, mm-hmm. and then where the dot sits around the spade shows which battalion they're in. Um 101st artillery had a cannonball. So if you watch the episode, you'll see that his helmet marking is a little bit different. It's a cannonball. Um, Man. so McAuliffe is the assistant. All the
1: little stuff. They did. I mean, we were docking them earlier about some little dings here and there, but like that type of attention to detail.
0: Absolutely. So he is in charge because General Taylor is on leave. Because Battle of the Bulgers was a surprise. Um, you could say, some have said that it's an allied failure of intelligence. Should have seen it coming, didn't see it coming. Um, but anyways, that means that people were not ready to jump in the lines, as in the
1: leaders are gone. I have a question for you, Mr. Warman, history man. So like campaigns, traditional campaigns died down over the winter. Armies wintered right like the roman armies that type of stuff what i'm talking about they wintered and then you have the summer campaigns we had some you know we had spring fighting season and it closed up in the fall massive fighting um winter was pretty mild here and there there were no campaigns though you know what i mean like and my question is when you said it wasn't supposed to be fighting in this era in the 40s was it so, was was winter normally kind of downtime or were they still kind of always fighting and doing campaigns? You see what I mean? Like in World yeah. War One, I, I don't even know. I mean, were they I think they were still going at it except for those little truces. There was no winter break, as I understand well,
0: it. Right. I mean, they would play seasons as best they could. And I mean, especially if you look on the eastern front, it never stopped. There was fighting 12 months out of the year. There's never really a time where everything just comes to a standstill.
1: Yeah. What's happening
0: on the western front, though, is Market Garden was attempted in September of '44, so that was going to be the big jump, and it didn't work. So they kind of pulled back and decided they had to do this slow trudge in across France through parts of Belgium into Germany. So it's not that they've stopped for the winter, but forward progress has slowed quite a bit because it's going to be so much easier come spring. Hmm. So they're not they're not set in their lines. This isn't their winter phase line, and they're done. It's just a much slower pace of advance as they near Germany. And the reason it's unexpected is Germany's moving through an area, the Ardennes forest, where it's not expected that they can mass armor. Mm. The allies don't think they have this type of punching capacity left. They think they're beat down. There's no, they pushed Germany all the way back from the coast of France to the border of Germany. Mm-hmm. Some of these fights are in Germany during the battle of the Bulge. Um, mm. They're, I mean, they're right, right on the border there. So it seems like Germany's pretty well defeated. So it's almost like a cornered animal that you think is down and out and it lashes out and just an incredible force, more people and equipment and tanks than the allies were thinking existed. So everybody thought it was a downtime. They thought it was going to be a little quiet for a few months. The Soviets were kicking off an offensive. Um, It was going to tie up Germany, which is one of the reasons that the Battle of the Bulge kicked off or as Germany called it, the watch on the Rhine. So they mm-hmm. called it watch on the Rhine because that sounds defensive, right? We're going to keep yeah. an eye on the Rhine. But it was actually um, forming up to punch, into the, to punch into the allied lines. They wanted to do it before the Soviet offensive because if they could get the Western allies to collapse, they could then sue for peace before the Soviets kicked off their winter offensive.
1: Gee whiz.
0: So there's a lot to this one. but
1: um, Well, the, they, they dug their own grave there.
0: And there's a big argument to be made of what the heck is Germany doing using their last little bit of energy against the Western allies. Couldn't you have used that on the Eastern Front? But when you start talking um, strategic decisions within Nazi Germany, you're going to run into some logical issues Yeah, because yeah. there weren't a lot of logical decisions at the very top.
1: And who's running the show Social. at that point. Yeah. The good generals are kind of gone but who's the ass kissers
0: Delusional. i mean there were there were some of hitler's generals at this point they looked at this plan and, and what it called for they're just like we don't have that you think we have what well, we don't have the number of divisions he called for was like two or three times what they actually had at their disposal so he had this plan in his mind like and we're gonna punch right through and his generals were like we yep.
1: can't. the ass kissers and what they did it anyway that's why they're an ass kisser um the 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 yes men over the years because everyone else would have been taken out by then or replaced and so now all you have are uh agreeable people and when you're surrounded by self that agree with you all the time it's not gonna work out
0: so mcauliffe checks in on the guys up the front lines which is awesome it's a general right but he's in this besieged town so what's he doing he's out on the front lines checking on i mean He's checking the front lines right after they pulled a German prisoner, right? If you yeah, remember that,
1: did, that like, is true.
0: Right there. And he says there's a lot of shit in this way. A couple of fights kick off, and I want to get into Doc Rowe and kind of his, his role here. But the first thing that comes to mind, or that I thought was worth talking about with Doc, artillery kicks off, which would just would have been horrible to, to deal with. All of a sudden, the cry somebody cries out medic. So Rowe gets up amidst the artillery barrage sprints over there, dives in the guy's foxhole, and the guy says, I won't leave the line. I don't want to go back. And, and Roe yells at him, what the hell are you calling for a medic if you don't want to go back? Mm-hmm. And his arm is like, it's still there. It looks pretty messed up. It at the very least looks like it hurts.
1: Mm-hmm. But I thought,
0: mm-hmm. how much have they been through and how much have they seen for the medic to get angry at somebody for calling a medic because he's got a pretty severe pretty severe wound on his arm you know what i mean
1: right like um, that
0: you need help for that
1: <laughs> by the way his attitude of disposition hey this goes back to ass kissers um he's not eugene Rowe is not an ass kisser it doesn't matter what rank you are um he he talks he really talks to lieutenants and he will chat he chastises him And he doesn't matter. His mission is for the men. And so he doesn't care what um, an officer might think about him or that the fact an officer might outrank him or the fact that an NCO might uh, ruin his day. Um, That is not on his radar at all. The only thing on his radar is the priority to the company, to the men on the line. And that's what I respect. I mean, that is what it is. Right. Um, He's just not an ass kisser. (laughs) And I think the episode just, that's the story. That's a part of it. And that's the story of the, the relationship between the line guys and company medics or in line medics.
0: But it's, but it's challenging too, because you can see there's a point where a patrol kicks out, combat patrol. Um, and they say that says a combat patrol doc, you stay back. Mm-hmm. Ro is, is moving out with, mm-hmm. he didn't ask anybody. He just sees his guys going and go time. My
1: right, guys are yeah.
0: rolling out, I'm gonna go with them. Now, where you get into a little bit of an issue here, and, and the reason there would ever be a you need to stay back, is medics were non-combatants in World War Two. Mm-hmm. This is some of this had some gray areas as of late, but or it's more complicated than I can dive into. But in order to maintain that non-combatant status, which means that you cannot be deliberately tar- deliberately targeted, um, you couldn't carry a weapon. So Roe is not. Carrying a rifle, so they're saying it's a combat patrol. We're going to go move into contact. We'll call you if we need you. There's a piece where you understand that, um, you know, extra people. You need the added sound, added movement, um, but you can see that weighs on I mean, if you remember that part in the episode, he just sits down right where he is, up against the tree, and just stares blankly in the direction they they came from.
1: That's interesting. I never thought about it like that, to be honest. Because I know what you're talking about with him kind of squatting by the tree. Um, hmm. Yeah, I never thought about that because I feel like what they're saying to him is like, we're trying to protect you. Like, hmm. this is a combat patrol. We're doing a combat thing. You don't even have a freaking gun and you're not, we can't let you, we're trying to get shot so you don't have to type thing. Like, and then if we need you, they're saying they're the ones who are going to get shot and they're saying i don't want the medic right by me and if that happens we'll send a runner and you can come get my bloody stumps you think in their self-interest they would want the medic they're about to go fight some germans one would think in a logical sense one would want a medical professional not even pressure but in a worst in the best case scenario you'd have a surgeon right behind you you know what i mean like because as soon as you get hit you can get get the bullet out. Um, but they're saying the exact opposite of that at great risk to their own personal self.
0: See, I, I think it shows the challenge of, you know, being an artilleryman. I, we, we had medics, worked with medics, of course. Um, I've never been in that role and I'll jump forward. They, they, they show some of these scenes of what the nurses were doing. And I'll just say, I don't think I could have ever done. It. I don't think I could have been a medic. Um, Watching what these guys had to do that 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 burden of trying to keep people alive, especially in an environment like this where they 're trying to keep people alive and it's you know what percent is working? How many people does doc Rowe have die in his arms? I just bet he 's trying to save i don 't
1: think that's a job I could have done, but um i 'll stop you right there that 's a paramedic today that pulls dead babies out of cars and dying yeah. babies that die in their arms i couldn't um that is like every day right now Um, you're right i agree with you yeah i agree with you um that's a special type of person to do that type of stuff
0: but i i think one of the things when this whole doc stay back it's a combat patrol that hits me is the you you were getting at it but like and they hit it a few times in the episode where it's what are two medics doing sharing a foxhole and and doc get out of here it's about to start but like you need them as close as possible and they want to be as close as possible. Right. But you also have to protect them. And, and how do you do that? Because um, the whole company is at risk if the medic gets hit. Um,
1: I, I was just explaining to my friend the, the nuance and the oddness of, I was trying to describe a scenario where there were times where I would have soldiers tell, like an NCO tell me, sir, no, you don't just, we'll take, we'll because if I want to go up there and do something, you have an NCO that'd be like, no, sir, you're not, you know, let us, what he's let us handle it. We're fine. And it's the balance of me wanting to be there and present that whole lead from the front. But what they're also saying is they're, what they're essentially saying is we're going to step on the ID, not you. Like that, that, um, uh, truly like that selflessness of wanting to, they think that the mission is more important. And so like, and I, and every time we're like, no, I'm going I'm like, just be quiet. And they're like, well, we can't, you know, that's too important for an officer to die. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, and I think that's, that's what they're doing with the medics. And, 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 and I, I, I did it for the company commander. Like, no, you know, you stay back here and do your thing. We'll go up and, you know, we'll go forward and, and handle it. You don't, you don't need to be up here. We'll do it. And it wasn't necessarily a micromanagement. It was more like, you're more important doing your thing here. We got this. There's no sense you stepping on something. Um, And that's kind of, that's, that's how I, and, and, and of course we're talking about band of brothers. And so um, that's where it all frames in my mind in this whole relationship. Um, And especially with the medic. So I think
0: part of what they do a good job in this episode showing is that it, why it makes sense for this to be the medic episode is you can't get the wounded out. People have mm-hmm. to put up with things that they might not otherwise have to, because there's no alternative. And it kind of makes me feel weak when you see what these guys with frostbite on their feet, I agree with are that. wounded, and they're just sitting in their foxhole watching the line. And like, you don't know, is this going to be for a week? Is it going to be for a month? Is it going to end with you being captured or killed? Like how many of those guys had the sniffles, right? Things that we'd call off sick for work for. Right. And like, I know it's not a fair comparison because what are you going to do? You're surrounded at Bastogne in the middle of a war, but Mm -hmm. it just makes me, it made me feel a little guilty at the times where I have felt a little under the weather, recognizing that, these guys were still, it wasn't just that they were staying live. They were getting up, going on combat patrols when they're half frozen to
1: death. I mean, I've personally, myself, used this episode in my own mental resiliency going through my army shit. Um, anytime I was cold, to tell myself at least I wasn't in best, At least this isn't Bastogne. Dude, I'm, I'm weak and the- cold right now, right. but like I'm not in Bastone right now. You know, people have had it worse than me. If they can do it, I can do it. Right. And it's that sad because you want to motivate yourself. That's what mental, you got to, the mind has to believe for the body to follow. And so um, I've totally used this episode like a lot of times, to be honest, when it comes to being cold.
0: I don't handle the cold well at all. I would probably be, I'm a very bad hunter. I'd probably be, be, be a better hunter if I could sit in the tree sand longer, but it takes like very moderate temperatures for me to get cold. And I never can have enough clothes on, or I don't wear enough clothes and maybe not smart enough to do that. But something that came to mind while, during that firefight scene, when they're moving to, con- the moving to contact, combat patrol, whatever you want to call it, and they're moving back, and they're sprinting, right? And they're out of breath and they're running. They're sweating. Hmm.
1: So
0: just... Think about this again. Just one of these weird little things that easy to gloss over, but you're freezing. You don't have anywhere near enough clothing. None of them, clothing, none of them did. You finally get the blood moving on a patrol, and the blood's moving when you're kicking off on a patrol like that. Mm -hmm. If something happens, you start sweating all over. Everything's getting wet. But then you have to stop. And it's not like you can slowly work your way back to the cold weather. You're just now outside Mm -hmm. and Negative degree temperatures and what Do it again tomorrow, right? Every mm-hmm. time contact kicks off, like I don't care how cold you are, you know they're sweating, and that's what I freezes. never thought
1: about. Th- that's it. a very interesting take.
0: Those little things, man, they just make it horrible.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that is totally right. When because <laughs> you learn, yeah, you you learn. Let's say you have it's cold and it's land navigation and you're freezing. Um, and you really want to wear your, you know, your, uh, under, you know, your long underwear underneath, but as soon as you get moving, you start sweating your ass off. And as soon as you stop you freeze, you're soaked. And I never thought about that with them. Like I'm looking at the cold sweat, the dry or not the cold sweat, but the cold, um, dry coldness that you keep seeing, like having to shave, breaking the ice, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But that, what you're talking about is just another level of misery. To add to the equation, because you're right, it's already bad enough to just have to sit in a tree stand out in Bastogne for 30 days uh, in in the middle of December, but to add like forget about even the shooting part, but just add the fact that you don't have the right um, thermal type wear, and then you're adding in this sweating and sprinting stopping, where you allow your old stuff to get wet and let it probably freeze on top of you is just it's terrible the whole thing's because terrible you because you can't have
0: fires they didn't really every so often they do something in the in the series that i take for granted and realize i was waiting for them to explain it and they mm. didn't they, they kind of showed it right anyways they can't have fires right Is fires put off smoke maybe they can seen. what it it, it triggers an artillery barrage because when you're looking out into a barren wasteland, you can't really exactly tell where the enemy is, but then you see a fire. There's a target. If you're a I'm forward observer, that. perfect. We mm-hmm. know there's somebody at least near that. And it's not entirely let's kill them because they're out in the open. It destroys morale
1: mm-hmm.
0: in temperatures like that. If as soon as they light a fire to try to warm up, it triggers an artillery barrage. They can't light a fire.
1: That goes back to tone. It's not necessarily about where you are on the board. It's attitude. And that's creating fear and stuff. You're the boogeyman. The Germans are the boogeyman and they have you surrounded.
0: So they do get it from every direction for days on end here, it seems like. And, and something that about halfway through the episode, I mean, it's not like they show people sleeping a lot in the episode, but Doc Rowe, Doesn't appear to ever sleep because even at night he's moving foxhole to foxhole, checking on guys that are sleeping. Mm -hmm. Um, It's crazy, and it it, you can see. I think they show what this is doing to him, the toll it's taking. Because it's not just the combat losses; it's not just the wounded from gunfire and artillery, but the cold is taking its effect, and he's having to go around and check on guys without boots, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and all of the other issues that are at play that are in the medics wheelhouse that he has to try to deal with if he can. There's a scene where tanks start to roll in, which we've talked about this before. Like that's a problem for the 101st airplane. Yeah. And right. And the call for medics goes out. Somebody comes in and Ro is just sitting there with a blank stare on his face. There's gunfire overhead. There's tanks rolling by and he is just in a daze. And I think it just shows like there's a, not a breaking point, but like he's got to be bordering on numb and just exhausted. Right.
1: I mean, and that's a symptom of, you know, stress is like, you know, you always hear the terms fight or flight. Yeah. But in reality, a lot of times it's, it's, um, it's freeze and it's not panic. It doesn't mean panic. It's just the, the exact, it's just the inability to do because the moment is just, and for maybe for him, it was like another one, <laughs> another one, you just can't do another one. And then another one, you know, it's never ending. The way that hit me was
0: when you've had like a really long day and then something bad happens right at the end of it. And you need just a second to kind of like,
1: <sighs> yeah. Like
0: yeah. he wasn't going to stay in the foxhole. He was going to get out and help his guys, but yeah. just that, brief moment of you know maybe if there were subtitles for what was going through his head maybe a are you kidding me
1: that that's Give what I'm trying break. to say it's like just a temporary freeze of inaction to really he probably has to that back to the mental thing I mean he's got to gather up the mental energy to then go do the physical part because he is exhausted he's tired and he's got to be it it's it's got to be extremely taxing as the medic because you're constantly having to tell people you're gonna be fine you know you're gonna be fine you're gonna be, okay, you're gonna be okay you're gonna be fine you're gonna be okay we're gonna you know you're constantly having to do that and so it has to be very very taxing mentally um, for that job on top of the fact that people are dying in his arms of course and like but and it is a physical job so um, having to get the mind it's like you take that however long to yourself to then be game on it's like if you just run around and just react immediately you're going to be a chicken with your head cut off
0: but that's what he has to do in this situation is the thing is he just has to i think that's why it's so exhausting is they mentioned that there's no surgeon mm-hmm. so he's kind of it there's yeah. not really a sort of aid station unless they get back to that church they hardly have any sort of transportation they don't have supplies everybody's running out of stuff and it's constant I mean, I think what they're showing in some of this is it's not just when the contact kicks off and artillery rounds land and somebody gets wounded. It's in the middle of the night. He's still out there doing this stuff. And like, I think it just, like in any of these other episodes, everybody's moving and everybody stops. And then everybody's moving and everybody stops. This one, for the most part, everybody's kind of stopped and dug in, which listen, that might be worse, having to sit in those foxholes and bastone. But Doc has to do more. Hmm. It's like this, I don't know, it's hard to say, like, on versus off, but.
1: And he doesn't get a lot. At least the guys on the line were able to rotate in and off the line, I'm sure. Like, it's a big patrol. I'm sure it's a big patrol base, and you'd have guys pushed out on a perimeter, and it might be like, well, I don't know how thin they were. I don't know been, if but they they're... were all on the line sleeping, but, you know, a lot of times you'd have someone, like, up kind of on the line and then just just tucked back at least someone would be racking out for two hours and it, now that could be interrupted with shelling and stuff but even if it's uninterrupted with shelling they're still just staying there and covering down and then they're rotating um, but they're also patrolling and they're they're quite physical but for him it, to think of him have these uh, stretches of time when his job is not really outsourceable the way an infantry squad or infantryman might be uh, more i don't want to say expendable but there's just more of them they're just more that are handy that can do the job and he's kind of the only i mean he's the he's the company medic right the senior medic i believe so yeah and then because i we <laughs> saw the other one platoon medic i don't know if there are other ones but um they're all looking to him for stuff and, and you know the medics are looking to him and then all the soldiers are too so it's like it's just a it's a it's a big job and 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 someone has to do it, and it's him he's got to do it
0: something I wanted to hit on here is one of these I have these thoughts in my mind when it, when you're reading these different books or watching the movies and and one of them has to do with with when people are wounded because it's a when you look at something like bastone it's a statistic right x number killed x number wounded when you're watching the show um, you hear that somebody's wounded or killed and and we know what killed means. That's pretty clear cut. Wounded though, because you see these guys either not come off the line or come back after being wounded, I think it's easy to, to almost hear wounded and say, good, right? Good, not dead. Mm. They made it. It wasn't that bad. Um, that's my view. Not, not good that they got wounded, but that's a positive because that sounds like they were almost killed and they weren't. They made it. And I forget that, I can't remember the guy's name, but he shot right at the beginning of the attack through his, through his shoulders, and he's paralyzed. Yes. He's wounded. He's going to survive. But that 21 or 22-year-old private, is going to spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Yep. Just a wound, right? Just wounded. Better than dead, but how many guys dealt with that?
1: Oh, well, Yeah. And then we'll see what happens with the amputations that are bound to occur. There's also disfigurements. Um, you know, people get shot in the face, um, get shot in the yeah face and survive. Um, but life over death, too. I mean, it is it is wounded, thankfully, and I think that's important. Um, but and then the people that don't get physically wounded are still not the same either. You know, when they come back, they're still changed too. And they, their mental dispositions might even be worse than the ones that do have their wounds. Um, So it's just, everybody carries something and that goes back to winters on the train.
0: It feels weird saying this because we've deployed, we've seen the guys get wounded and come back missing an arm or a leg and wounded. Now they're an amputee. Life is totally different. So Mm -hmm. like, I know that I know that that's a thing, but still when I'm reading about military history and they say the company suffered 30% wounded to me, it's, you know, a scar down the arm. Yeah. Like that's just what comes into mind instead of like, well, that might be 17 people that lost a leg.
1: Um, I was friends. My first job out, I worked in like financial advice, well, you know that, but, um, A guy worked with was an old guy, and he was drafted right after college, and so he was in like 1960 to 1962, something like that. It was way it was it was in between, almost right in between Vietnam and Korea, Mm -hmm. and um, all of the college people as soon as they graduated all had to hop on a bus and do their two years. And uh, he was a Spanish major, but he was drafted into uh, Burn Ward medic at Sam Houston, Texas. And he treated the most horribly disfigured burn victims from Korea from like, and he was telling me those stories about him being fresh out of college. I mean, this is the market left on him as a young man who just, you know, he, he didn't want to be in the army necessarily, but he got drafted and, you know, showed up. And that was what he, that, that gave him perspective on life at a very early age that he carried for the rest of his life of these He's a young man having the sponge bath, bathe, and um, they—I guess they had a pool, but their skin would fall off, and it was lots of people. And that was, you know, Korea was several years prior to that, and those are all to your point, uh, WIA's—the lucky guys, right? They were right. Right.
0: Something else when it when we're looking at Bastogne, early in the episode, they're walking around and they saw it was doc Rowe looking for supplies and he, he turns and there's bodies in the snow and the same just another random one that came across while watching this is in these larger conflicts that would happen people would fall and then snow would cover them hmm. or would cover them hmm. there's, there's battlefield cleanup
1: right
0: somebody's going somebody's going to move those bodies mm-hmm. somebody might not be able to move those bodies for 2 years where they look like at that point right right this isn't you know we think about exercises in the military you go out and go pick up brass afterwards right or i dropped a magazine over there or whatever it might be but what do you do when there's dead bodies laying all crap all around bastone covered in snow you got to keep moving to the next objective to the ne- whatever it might be that's all across europe man i mean it's all across every theater um, well and
1: it's almost they're lucky that it was winter that way the bodies weren't rotting because if they were rotting um you're in war i mean what are you gonna do pile them up and burn them or something because it's like waste it's biohazard at that point too like think then about you, that for real then you get the pacific theater yeah i mean the it's bodies are rotting yeah they'll produce casualties so that becomes a threat if you think about it
0: it's it's another it's in a camp of like not a lot of thought but there are There are just bodies
1: scattered logistics hey wars are one they they won on logistics we're talking about bastone's also a story about logistics
0: so we would mentioned one of the challenges here being nobody knows when it's going to end how it's going to end and one of the more famous lines in military history definitely 101st airborne history the germans send in a runner under a white flag courier messenger i don't know what term you want to use and he comes in and he has a message for General McAuliffe. And it says, surrender. And we won't annihilate your troops. we we'll be surrounded. Come on, you're cut off. It's the only honorable way. Surrender and you'll live. And there's a couple different stories here. But the general gist is that he says something that can't be written down. It's too profane when he hears that. In fact, the first, when he first heard it, he thought the Germans were offering to surrender. And he said, "Great." That was his mindset. He said, "Great." What took him so long? You know, something along those lines. Interesting. Um, when they find out, no, 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 they want you to surrender. He yelled something too profane to put down in the history books. So they made him type up a response, and they put down in the response to the German commander, "Nuts." The American commander. They give it back to the Germans uh, who are going to be led back out to their lines, and the guy looks at it and he doesn't speak great English. So he says. What does this mean? And the American there says, it means you can go to hell and sends it guy out his way. So well, that's your beat the chest moment right there.
1: Well, and remember in the beginning, uh, it was fun reading those quotes, how they were all saying like nobody ever even, it didn't even cross their mind. That goes back to the mental driving the physical. So mentally they were already in a position that they're a concrete wall that's moving forward. I like the mindset of
0: your surrounded cut off undersupplied people dying left and right. And you think the enemy is ready to surrender to you. I love That's that. Right.
1: Cause you're not stopping. You're getting into Germany. That's why you're here. You're, you're designed to be surrounded and we're moving forward.
0: Well, it's not quite over yet. Um, despite all of that, there's still a little bit more fighting to happen in Bastogne and we start to get into some things It seems like each episode as we go gets a little bit more into some of the um, mental aspects and the toll that it's taking on people. Mm. Almost like every episode, you start to see somebody else get impacted a little bit differently. Um, And I think that's going to really show in the next episode, the name kind of gives it off, but episode seven is coming up next. It's called The Breaking Point. And that's next time on War Stories.